without further ado, uh, I would love to welcome Greg Potter on the show. How are you doing, man? I'm, I'm very well. I, I feel like <laughs> yeah. I've been here before or something. Yeah, it seems like so. So basically, let's dive deep into how you can optimize your night's sleep from the moment when you wake up to the moment when you go to sleep. So obviously, optimizing your sleep starts already before you go to sleep, but we'll get to that by the end of the interview. So let's start from the morning. So would you wake up like at sunrise or before sunrise or after sunrise? Seems like there are different type of uh, sleepers and some, of our, some people are night owls, some are morning people. I'm personally someone who likes to wake up once the sun is up. Also, I think that it's, at least in my case, almost unhealthy to wake up before that time if I want to keep my stress level down. So what's your advice? When should you wake up? My advice is that when you should wake up is dependent on you as an individual, which isn't particularly helpful, but I'll expand on that. If you look at people of a given age and a given sex, then you see quite large differences between people in their preferred time in which to go to bed and time in which to wake up. And that difference between people tends to be higher in urban settings. And the reason for that is that if you were to take individuals and take them down into a cave, for example, which is a condition of so-called temporal isolation, by which I mean they're not exposed to any time cues such as the light, dark, in temperature or change in food availability. Sounds like my then bedroom. You would find <laughs> exactly. Then you would find that some people's body clocks are substantially longer than 24 hours, and some people's body clocks are less than 24 hours. And those with the longer body clocks would tend to be night owls when they then go back outside and have to synchronize their clocks with the 24-hour day. And what you find is that the most important time cues in synchronizing our body's clocks are the light-dark cycle for the clocks in our brains that dictate when we go to bed and when we wake. The time of food availability for the other clocks in our bodies, which optimize timing of things like digestion and physical activity too. So with that said, what people need to do is focus on giving their bodies strong time cues. And that means spending time outdoors during daylight and avoiding exposure or minimizing exposure to artificial light at night. Right. And if they do that, then what you would find is that whereas if you take a sample of people in Helsinki, for instance, you have that big variation between people and you have those people who go camping, that variation between people will become smaller. And for that reason, people need to focus on spending more time outdoors during daylight, having a focus on minimizing their exposure to artificial light at night, and sleeping in when they can, of course. Most people, about 80% of people worldwide, use alarm clocks. And if it's possible for you to not use one, then that'd be preferable because that way you're going to get complete sleep. If you must use one, then you want to set it as late as possible in the day. 
And if you have to use one, then you should think about what you can do to shift your body's clock earlier, such that you will fall asleep earlier and thereby prolong your sleep period and hence experience all the benefits that people get when they get more sleep. Okay, I, I so, have a few practical questions here. So there's a bunch of yeah. different, you know, devices on the market and apps also that help you to figure out like an optimal time to wake up. And for example, in the sleep cycle app, uh, they have a functionality that tries to predict uh, when you should be waking up and it's kind of maybe starts that process uh, within a window of one hour. So figuring out when you are coming out of, uh, let's say, deep sleep into a more lighter sleep uh, to wake you up and to time your wake-up time with your um, basically different sleep stages you're going through. So to my understanding, it's around 90 minutes. You go to deep sleep, light sleep, REM sleep, back to light sleep, deep sleep, etc. And in the end of the night, you get more deep. In the uh, Sorry, in the beginning of the night, you get more deep. In the end of the night, you get more REM. So in REM, you see more dreams. So um, how, do you see benefit of using these kind of technologies that kind of uh, fit your wake-up time in your uh, in the cycles of sleep that you're going through? I certainly think that eventually there will be benefit to using those, but there are a couple of things to consider. So one is that sleep cycles are on average about 90 minutes, and therefore you'd expect most people to go through maybe five of those each night, something like that. The reality is that if you look at a hippogram, which is just a graphical representation of somebody's sleep cycles, it's not as predictable as that nice first cycle, second cycle, third cycle. What you find is that you have the first cycle and then somebody gets disturbed by something that interferes with their ability to get into the deeper stage of sleep. They have all of these little arousals from sleep. Maybe they get up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. And so what you would need is a device that's very sensitive at detecting those different stages of sleep. You can do so accurately. And to do that, you need certain things. So for example, if you look at REM sleep, the stage of sleep in which you dream, then one of the defining characteristics of that is rapid movements from side to side in people's eyes. So if people have young infants and they watch them sleep, then you can see their eyes darting back and forth from side to side. Right. That means that at that stage, they are dreaming. And if you have a sleep study done on yourself, by which I mean you go into a sleep medicine clinic and you have a bunch of electrodes hooked up to your brain, you have different apparatus attached to different parts of your body too, then one of the things that you look at is those eye movements. But if you don't measure those directly, then you have to start making lots of inferences in order to estimate that somebody is in REM sleep. Right. And right now, these devices, to my knowledge, aren't particularly good at identifying sleep stages. I think they will be in years to come. They're quite good at estimating sleep duration. But <laughs> for you to get a good handle on sleep stages, you would need something more similar to the equipment that they use in sleep labs. And to my knowledge, perhaps the something like that is the Z-Max, I think it's called, which is something that you strap to your forehead and wear during sleep. You'd have to be very keen on measuring everything about your sleep to wear. For most people, 
So you mean like some kind of like an EEG device. There used to be this company called CEO that made this headband and that read your EEG. And based on that, it figured out the stage of your sleep. So now we have on the market, we have, you know, companies like Aura that are producing rings that try to figure that out from fluctuations in your body temperature, in your heart rate, in your Mm. physical movement. So what you're saying is that even with such such many sensors that um, uh, I guess compared to a a smartwatch, uh, Aura at least claims that the accuracy of the ring is pretty good because it's not moving uh, in your finger. And uh, they have also other sensors on it uh, to figure out heart rate variability and, and body temperature fluctuations and so on. So most of the activity trackers used to be about uh, tracking your movement throughout the night. So when you're in deep sleep, you're kind of paralyzed and don't move much. So that's when they try to estimate that. Uh, maybe they can look at heart rate. So your heart rate kind of drops throughout the night. Although if you ate a late meal, then your heart rate will be elevated uh, and, and so on. So... Are you saying basically that the current variables are quite useless in figuring out your sleep architecture? I'd say I'd say quite useless is stronger than what I would use, but they have sensors that should enable accurate sleep staging over time. So if you look at REM sleep, for instance, then what you see is quite dramatic fluctuations in somebody's heart rate. And you would observe that as big change in somebody's pulse rate at the finger. And Aura has quite high resolution measures of pulse rate, which is great. And also during REM sleep, it's sometimes called paradoxical sleep because most of your muscles, other than, for example, the respiratory muscles that you use to breathe, become temporarily paralyzed. So if you think about the fact that the person should be completely immobile and their heart rate is fluctuating quite wildly, then... Those two characteristics mean that over time, these sensors, these biosensors should be able to identify sleep stages. But based on the published literature to date, it doesn't seem that they're very good at sleep staging. And I'll add a caveat here, which is that if you look, for example, at the Aura Ring, then there's a single study that's been published on it, which was published on the first generation ring. And it was published a couple of years ago. So it's difficult for us to know how accurate the devices are at the moment. And then the other consideration is that these companies will regularly push out things like firmware updates and they'll change their algorithms and so on. And so over time, they're probably getting better and better. But it's a very hard thing to study because the process of a scientific paper takes a lot of time. The manually improving their wearables so it's difficult to say right now, but based on what's out there to date, I would say that people shouldn't worry too much about sleep staging based on what their devices feed back to them. And it's interesting in that in the last year or so, people have started to speak about so-called orthosomnia. You will have heard of orthorexia, I'm sure, which yes. is this unhealthy fascination with consuming a healthy diet. And orthosomnia is the sleep sleep equivalent of that. So what started to happen is that people have these wearables and now they go into sleep clinics and they say, my wearable tells me that I'm getting zero REM sleep. Should I be concerned? At which point the sleep specialist will say, how do you feel? I feel absolutely fine. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's that's a problem at the moment. Of course. So so people make up 
sleep problems that they don't have. And uh, I, for me personally, the biggest benefit of using something like Oura over a, a, a basically a smartwatch tracking my sleep architecture or an app like Sleep Cycle or Sleep Time is the fact that I get uh, HRV measurements throughout the night. And I think that's a better measure right now in terms of how I look at my sleep. So I look at my sleep duration. Did I sleep enough? Did I have early, uh, did I ha have nightly wake-ups in the middle of the night? And also looking at uh, heart rate variability. And I've realized that I get more recovery or higher uh, heart rate variability if I eat a little bit earlier uh, rather than later at night. And also that I d don't go for strenuous exercise too late in the evening or even strenuous sauna sessions or anything else like uh, let's say an argument with someone or watch a really engaging uh, horror movie or something like this just before going to sleep. So I've also noticed that there is a difference in my uh, average uh, heart rate variability when I've been traveling compared to when I'm in nature, for example, a complete, complete like... Uh, opposite of that. So I find from ordering the most beneficial thing that I track is really HRV. I'm not really looking at sleep components. I know a lot of people are obsessed about their deep sleep amount or REM sleep amount, but there has been a lot of uh, discussion online on the accuracy of those, even with the ring position, maybe giving out different measurements using two different rings, the other one giving slightly different results, comparing that to your smartwatch. So what seems to work is sleep duration. And HRV, because of the quick sampling rate, I mean, if you compare that to a heart rate monitor around your chest, that seems to correlate pretty well with the O-ring. So, so I, I think that's a pretty good way to look at the wearables today is maybe look HRV instead of sleep components. What do you think? So I think that first there's good science to back up pretty much everything that you just said, probably all of it, but some of it I just won't be aware of. Now, something you mentioned is the trends in your data. And I believe that that is the most important thing to watch over time. The utility of these devices, to me, for the most part, is raising people's awareness about how they're behaving. And if you see that your HRV is plummeting, or if you see that your resting heart rate is increasing, I should say resting pulse rate and pulse rate variability in the context of aura. But if you see those trends over time, then that should be a red flag that something untoward is probably happening. And you can start to identify relationships between what's going on in your life and those outcomes. So if somebody from aura is listening, then I think it would be a very good thing for users to be able to tag different nights of sleep, for example, or different days with different exposures and then start to understand those relationships between how they're behaving and things like their sleep score right. or their recovery score or their pulse rate variability. So what you could then do is you could, for example, compare days on which you consume caffeine to days on which you don't consume caffeine and see if there are differences in things like your sleep duration or perhaps your 
sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of time that you spend in bed that you're actually asleep. And that would then alert people to the possibility that maybe consuming that extra coffee isn't doing my sleep any good. Yeah, actually, I have a story here from the office. Uh, uh, one of our, my employees actually showed some data that she quit uh, drinking coffee for a couple of weeks and the average uh, HRV values went up, which indicated better recovery and also resting heart rate went down. And that was the only thing that she really changed was uh, the cup of joe in the morning and afternoon. So, so yeah, uh, contextualizing all this information is key. Now, uh, we could dig deeper into this, uh, but uh, I agree with you that probably one of the biggest benefits of having a wearable to track your sleep or an app is really that it helps you to pay attention to that aspect in your life. Uh, so the moment when you start measuring something, you become interested in it. Uh, the unhealthy consequence of that would be to think that you have a sleeping problem when you don't and uh, or or becoming completely neurotic about your aura data in the morning <laughs> that you just can't sleep without your data. Um, and uh, the other side of that is even though you might have inaccurate measurements, it's still making you pay attention to your sleep so that could have behaviorally beneficial um, consequences for sure. Now, when we, if we continue our morning, so um, you mentioned to me once that people of different ages have different sleep durations. So if you're a small child, you need more sleep and you sleep longer also. If you're an elderly person, you sleep less. Uh, and you tend to wake up earlier in morning, maybe five, six hours, and it feels just fine for you. So uh, what is the link here? And as we age, do we need less sleep or is there some physiological changes or hormonal changes or something that then results in less sleep that might be also speeding up aging? Or is there any consequence to aging from the sleep duration? Yeah, so I'll approach this question in a couple of different ways. One is timing. If we look at the time at which people actually fall asleep, then when we first are born, babies will tend to have quite variable sleep timing. Their circadian systems, their body's clocks don't function that well just yet. But then shortly afterwards, if you look at the sleep patterns of children, then they go to bed quite early and they wake up quite early. And then their sleep timing delays progressively throughout adolescence, such that at the end of adolescence, people tend to be at their latest relative to their lifespans. So boys on average will go to bed and wake up late at about 21 years of age, and girls will do so at about 19 and a half years of age. And then after that point, people get progressively earlier as they continue to age, such the difference between the sexes, wherein boys were once slightly later because they kept delaying for longer, disappears, and elderly men and women will go to bed at a similar time on average, and that will typically be quite early, often even earlier than young children. That seems to relate to a few different things. So. One of them is probably how sensitive our bodies are to 
light exposure. If you look at adolescents and you expose them to light in the evening, then they tend to be more responsive to that light, which has the effect that their body's clocks shift later to a greater degree than younger people or older people. That's one reason. Another reason potentially is that our body's box tick at slightly different speeds across the lifespan, which hasn't been well studied yet to my knowledge, but that is a potential contributor. And then people's body's clocks also just tend to function worse in general with age. Now, with respect to sleep duration, newborns will have more sleep than they will have at any other point in their life. And also a greater portion of that sleep will be rapid eye movement sleep, that stage in which we dream. Brain development. And what you'll find is that people need a lot of sleep during childhood hmm. and during adolescence. And then by the time that we're adults, sleep duration tends to start to decline. So the National Sleep Foundation currently recommends that 18 to 64-year-old adults get seven to nine hours of sleep per night. And for people over 64, I think they recommend seven to eight hours of sleep per night. Your question was, is it that elderly people need less sleep? That's a more difficult question to answer. Just because they sleep less, it doesn't mean they need less. And in a way, they're less effective at generating sleep over time, in particular, the deeper stage of sleep, slow wave sleep. And if you look at their slow wave sleep and then how that associates with various different things, such as their brain function, then there seems to be a strong relationship between the two, such that elderly adults whose sleep is more similar to earlier in life tend to better preserve their cognitive function, their memory, their ability to plan and carry out tasks and so on. So the question then would become for those people, what can I do to try to sustain that high quality sleep that I had earlier in life? Because not only do they sleep less over time, but their sleep tends to fragment. Maybe they become prone to waking up earlier than they would like, for example. Maybe they also experience daytime sleepiness. And if you look at their rhythms of rest and sleep, then the amplitude of those rhythms become smaller, such that at night, they tend to be a bit more active and their sleep is less deep. And then during the daytime, maybe they find at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Right. So could we maybe make a generalization that when there are massive changes going on in your body, you probably need more sleep? So if you have a growing growing uh, brain or if you've been exercising a lot and so on or maybe you have inflammation or some kind of injury or you need to recover your body is in a recovery mode so then you would need more sleep and uh, once if you're quite stationary you don't have a lot of inflammation going on or or illness um, in your in your system and you're at an age where the growth has pretty much stopped then you probably would perhaps need a little bit less sleep. And there could be genetic differences also to this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so cool. th there yeah. are genetic differences. If you look at people with very rare variants in a gene named DEC2, for example, then they have these short sleep phenotypes such that 
then you need slightly more than six hours of sleep per night. But those people are very few and far between. Right. Now, beyond that, your question related to... Sorry, just remind me of the, of the first part of the question. Well, uh, when it comes to uh, massive changes in your body, uh, mm. that's when you would need more sleep. So, for example, growing brain. Yeah. So, so if you take inactive people and you put them through structured exercise training, then they tend to fall asleep faster, their sleep quality improves, but their sleep does also prolong a little bit. You mentioned inflammation. If you look at inflammation, then interestingly, people who have chronic inflammatory issues sometimes report very long sleep. And that's probably in part because some of these inflammatory molecules, so some of the interleukins, for example, have sleep-promoting effects. And you might find that as an individual, when you have a, an infection or a cold, that you need a bit more sleep than you would do otherwise. So I completely agree with your point. And I think that the practical relevance for people is that during the daytime, they need to be active. And that pertains to both physical activity, but also mental activity. So if you're doing mentally stimulating work, you'll probably find that you sleep better at night, for example. Right. If you do the right amount of exercise, then you'll find the same. You don't want to do too much exercise. What you often find among athletes is that if they really push the boundaries, then they can temporarily go into this overreaching condition or eventually even overtraining and that tends to decimate sleep but for most people who are less active than would be ideal increasing their physical activity will quite potently improve their sleep and slightly prolong it too okay so you also shared some tips on melatonin supplementation and as you age if you're an elderly person uh, you secrete less melatonin. So that might be one of the contributing factors that you sleep less. So supplementing on melatonin might be a good idea. Now, you also mentioned that there are genetic variants uh, in some people who become more sensitive to the effects of melatonin in terms of blood sugar regulation. So you should definitely figure out like which type you are and how much you should be supplementing on and that feeding patterns make a huge difference in health uh, outcomes if you take melatonin. So melatonin is basically, un uh, basically it is something that also lowers inflammation based on studies. So it's anti-inflammatory, but taking it together with food might not be a good idea. So can, can you dive us deep a little bit in melatonin and if its effects and when you should take it? And if you're an old person, how much should you take and why? Sure. So just a primer on this, melatonin is a hormone that's synthesized by the pineal gland during darkness. Pineal gland is a structure in the brain. And what it does is it signals to all of your tissues that it's the nighttime and therefore it's the time to engage in nighttime activities. And you mentioned there that elderly people typically synthesize slightly less melatonin. So if you look at the concentration of melatonin in the blood, it's usually a bit lower or 6-alpha-toxy melatonin in their urine, which is the primary metabolite of melatonin, then it will be lower also. Just because melatonin is lower doesn't necessarily mean that somebody is going to sleep worse. And you have a small minority of people who synthesize next to no melatonin and they don't necessarily normal sleep. 
a few people who have undergone pinealectomy in which that pineal gland is surgically removed and their sleep doesn't seem to be as dramatically affected as you might anticipate but there's a distinction to make between physiological melatonin so the melatonin that your body would produce naturally and supplemental or exogenous melatonin you might take that in the form of a pill or a liquid and when people take supplemental melatonin then the concentrations of melatonin that people reach in their blood are much higher than they would naturally synthesize and they can affect sleep they do consistently affect sleep in most people and for elderly people who sleep tends to be for example that they struggle to stay asleep at night they have so-called sleep maintenance insomnia it can make sense for them to take melatonin and there's a product named circadian produced by Neurom Pharmaceuticals, which is, I think, two milligrams of a slow-release melatonin formulation, which is recommended for elderly people who have sleep maintenance insomnia. And otherwise, for those people who want to give it a go, I would suggest taking a lower dose of melatonin, so maybe just 300 to 500 milligrams, because those doesn't seem to necessarily influence the efficacy of mm. melatonin that much. It's not the case that higher doses necessarily mean better sleep and try a slow release formulation because melatonin is cleared by your body very quickly. It has a half-life of 45 minutes to an hour or so and taking that slow release variation profile. So those people can give that a go. For the rest of us, I think that melatonin should probably be reserved for jet lag. The exception to that would be people with circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders so sometimes that could result from shift work, for example. Sometimes you have these rare people who go to bed very early or very late, respectively, and they can benefit from melatonin. And also, occasionally people have a condition in which their body's clocks run free and just tick at their own speed. It's called non-24-hour sleep-wake rhythm disorder. And for those people, taking melatonin can help them. Now, to get to your question about melatonin supplementation and genetic differences between people, about 51% of Northern European heritage carry this melatonin receptor 1B gene variant, which influences how our bodies respond to melatonin. So it's quite it's common. So cool. Yeah, it's, it's very common. It's, it's carried by about 51% of those people, but also about a third of people worldwide. Could it be because we are here in the northern region and there is fancy, you know, basically completely irrational uh, changes in daylight cycles or midsummer is approaching in a couple of days and basically the sun never sets here in <laughs> Finland and I just need a sleeping mask just to stay awake all night long because of the light coming through windows. Yeah. So. So, so, so we are genetic freaks also, what you're saying, because of this, perhaps. <laughs> just, just you. <laughs> no, that, that does seem to be the case. There's, there's some latitudinal decline in chronotype. And if you look at different people according to different latitudes, then they do seem to have some differences in their circadian systems that result from their genetics. So that certainly seems to be a possibility. And that might underpin some of the differences in frequency of that particular melatonin receptor 1B gene that we see. Now, with that said, this particular genetic variant, as you mentioned, seems to slightly predispose people to developing type 2 diabetes. 
it's not a big effect size, much rarer variants of melatonin receptor genes will have more potent effects on risk of developing type 2 diabetes. But basically, melatonin at night tells your pancreas to sleep and it inhibits glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. And so what that means is that these people tend to have slightly more sluggish insulin responses to meals, their blood sugar regulation is a little bit worse. And interestingly, if you have these people and you have them take melatonin during the daytime, and then give them a standardized quantity of sugar, then their blood sugar responses to that bolus of sugar will be much more exaggerated than people who don't carry that risk variant of the melatonin receptor 1B gene. So for these people, it's probably more important to restrict their eating period to the biological daytime, by which I mean the time of day at which melatonin is low. And if you look at their melatonin rhythms, then it seems to be that their bodies continue to synthesize melatonin slightly later into the morning. Right. So for these people, it might be that using a slightly shorter caloric period each day makes sense. So to have a slightly later breakfast and possibly a slightly earlier dinner. So if, if you want to avoid, so if you want to avoid a risk of developing diabetes, theoretically, you would eat basically a later breakfast and you would supplement a lower dose of melatonin, if any, and you would take care of your day, day night, uh, schedule, uh, also. So, so that could help you to maintain a more steadier blood sugar level. And that would be a good idea from a health perspective, right? I, th I think it's more important for most people to focus on consuming an earlier dinner. So obviously when you eat, your food is still being digested and metabolized for several hours. And most people in the West in particular tend to consume very large dinners, moderate sized lunches and small breakfasts. And actually the research that's been done so far suggests that if you flip that on its head and have a majority of your calories early in your biological day, then a moderate sized lunch and a smaller dinner, you tend to sleep better, but then also experience bunch of different metabolic health benefits. So what I'm saying is that people who have that melatonin receptor gene variant might benefit from slightly delaying their breakfast. I've slightly, this is unproven as yet, but I'm only speaking about relative to their peers. And for most people, it still makes lots of sense to put more of their calories at breakfast. Just as one example of this, there was some work published six years ago by a lady named Danielle Yakubovics. And what she did was take overweight and obese women and split them into two groups. They were both on weight loss diets, which were standardized. So same number of calories per unit of body mass, same proportions of the macronutrients, carbohydrates, same amount of fiber and so on. The only difference between the groups was that in one group, they had 50% of their calories at breakfast. And in the other group, they had 50% of their calories at dinner. And the 50% of the calories at breakfast group were the so-called early eaters. What she showed us that the early eaters lost more than twice as much body weight, lost more than twice as many centimeters off their waists, and had better improvements in blood sugar and blood lipid regulation. And there are probably all sorts of different things that underlie this. So right. one is that all glucose tolerance is a bit higher earlier in the day. One is that you tend to burn more calories after consuming a given amount of food early in the day. So practically, 
most people should shift more of their calories to breakfast and make sure their dinner is small such that they go to bed not hungry, but certainly not full. Right. So uh, there is a book, a book, book. Um, so there is a book by Sachin Panda, uh, The Circadian Code, and he's a researcher who studied uh, time-restricted eating. So basically finishing eating before sunset. So I guess the idea here is that the same amount of calories should be consumed during daylight uh, instead of extending the feeding period to evening and night, uh, which seems to increase risk with the same calorie intake for obesity and diabetes and other other kind of uh, reasons. Uh, even inflammation could be uh, could be um, modulated by this feeding pattern that is at evening or night. So what's your take on that? Um, is, is that a good idea to eat within an eight-hour window? Yeah, so a couple of things to pick up on there. One was the idea of eating during daylight. I think that that makes a lot of sense for people at certain times of year if they're at high latitudes. But obviously, you at the moment, you're in this eternal sunshine And during the winter, it can practically be dark all day. So for those people, they need a slightly different strategy. But with time-restricted eating or consuming all of your calories for the day within a period of 12 hours or less, what I'll say is that there's quite a big difference between on other animals. So for example, fruit flies and mice and the research that's been done on humans, which is much more preliminary. If you look at other animals, then time-restricted feeding, so feeding because there are other animals, leads to a host of different benefits. So if you give mice, for example, a fat diet, which is also really a high-sugar diet, then their circadian systems function worse, and they spread out their feeding such that they're now consuming more of their calories when they would naturally be asleep. And they experience all stimulation in response to this. So their blood sugar control is worse. They tend to develop fatty liver disease. They're predisposed to gaining weight also. And if you then restrict their access to chow, what they eat, then they consume an equivalent number of calories, but they're consuming it all in their biological daytimes now. And they're protected against the development of those pathological conditions. And you see similar effects in fruit flies. So fruit flies, if you give them a 12-hour food access period each day and you compare them to another group in which they have round-the-clock food access, again, they consume the same number of calories. But as they age, they're protected against things like problems with the heart. They have better muscle function. They have better sleep. But you can sort of determine when, is, when a fly is engaging in sleep-like behavior and when they're not. And they tend to live slightly longer too. So preclinical research, really, really encouraging. And Sachin's done some incredible work in that. Yeah. So, so, now at- so, so basically, uh, it's still a theory from a human perspective. Animal studies are extremely promising. And even though you're not a fruit fly or a, or, or a rodent, you probably uh, would bet uh, 
on on this as as something that could be not harmful either for your uh, health if you restricted your window of eating. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, travel, there's a lot of people who uh, they break all these rules uh, just from a circadian biology perspective. So they would be eating uh, during daylight in a time zone, which basically their internal clock is at night at that time because they moved and haven't been adjusted yet. Now they wouldn't eat breakfast at the time when it, their clocks are having breakfast, uh, etc. So for those people, what your recommendation would be in terms of hacking your uh, circadian rhythm, maybe helping to adjust uh, how to think about feeding window, and perhaps even uh, melatonin supplementation. And uh, you also mentioned an interesting app that people could use to kind of figure all this out. Yeah, just to quickly return to what I was saying before, I'd say that a feeding period or an eating period of six to 12 hours each day for most people is about right. I wouldn't go shorter than six hours each day. And again, put more of your calories early in the day. There is some research showing that that type of compressed caloric period, so six hours each day, is beneficial, particularly in adult men with prediabetes. There's a nice study published last year on that. So yeah, there's probably nothing to lose from trying that. If anything, though, keep that caloric period early in your day and don't go short in six hours. If you're an athlete and you have a very high energy intake, then I think that time-restricted eating might not be for you. Now, to move on to jet lag, I mentioned near the start that our body's clocks are primarily set by the patterns of eating and fasting. So the light-dark cycle is the main one that sets the master clock in the brain, which then active and when we go to sleep. And then patterns of eating and fasting tend to have more potent effects on the clocks elsewhere in our body that time things like processes of building up structures and breaking down, digestion, when our skeletal muscles are primed for certain activities and so on. Now, with that in mind, what you're trying to do when you move to a new time zone is resynchronize your body's clocks with the new time zone as quickly as possible. And for that reason, you need to focus most on your exposure to the light and dark, your feeding fasting cycles or eating fasting cycles. And then also you can take melatonin to more quickly resynchronize your clock with the new time zone than you would achieve with just changes in your light and dark alone. The app that I mentioned is called Jetlag Rooster. And what you do is you go there and you just enter your origin and your destination. And you can choose things such as whether you want to begin to adjust your body's clocks before you travel or whether you want to do so only during travel and also whether you want to take melatonin. Now, if we start with melatonin, then the optimal dose for jet lag is probably somewhere between 0.5 and 2 milligrams. High dose of melatonin of the regular formulation are sometimes used to help people fall asleep faster. But the problem is that when you take a high dose, it tends to spend longer in your body. And to shift your clock, what you want is you want this big high amplitude but short duration pulse of melatonin. 
we're just going to more potently shift the timing of your body's clock. And that's actually true of light, but that's beside the point for the time being. So use Jet Lag Rooster to inform you about when it's best for you to try melatonin. Get regular melatonin, not slow-release melatonin, because as I mentioned, you want that rapid pulse of melatonin in your blood to help you avoid light exposure at certain times of day. I would suggest trying blue blocking glasses if you're up now. And if you're trying to, for example, sleep when it's light outside, or if you're trying to have a nap on the plane, then use a sleep mask. And if you're napping on the plane, recline your seat because you'll find that you can fall asleep slightly faster and the quality of your sleep will be slightly higher and you might sleep slightly longer too. And then with respect to eating, many people find it beneficial to fast during flights. And if you don't mind fasting, I think it's a prime time to because the quality of plain food is often not especially high. Shocker. <laughs> and what you can do is just wait until your first full day in the new time zone and then fully switch your meal timing to the new time zone. The alternative to that would be, well, this is one alternative, but it's an alternative that I personally use quite frequently, is thinking about times of day at which you would be eating in both time zones. Were I to go from London to San Francisco, I would have to go to bed later by about eight hours and get up later by about eight hours. So I'm trying to shift my body's clock by eight hours. And if I consume dinner here, then that's breakfast time in San Francisco. So I think that as I make that transition, it would make sense to wait until dinner in London or breakfast time in San Francisco for my first meal. And I put my calories for the day around that time of day. And then once I've arrived in San Francisco and it's the first full day in San Francisco, I would then switch my meal timing to the new place. And then other tips for travelers, I would say you're exposed to many more pathogens than you would be otherwise in places like airports. So you want to make sure that you're regularly washing your hands. During travel fatigue, people are off and they don't retain their normal drinking habits. So make sure that you consume plenty of water during that period. And then otherwise try to arrange comfortable stopovers whenever possible. Right. So uh, if we go and continue with the day, um, we get to, uh, we already covered uh, time-restricted eating. We covered the different apps and technologies. We covered melatonin. You also mentioned that uh, more like a time-release type of melatonin might be a better idea to keep up the melatonin concentration in your blood. Uh, at a natural phase, uh, you shouldn't over supplement on melatonin because there's less benefit, maybe some side effects to blood sugar management. Uh, we discussed different aged people um, uh, and, and, and all of that. And now we are kind of, um, we covered the travel aspect. One thing that I still want to kind of dig into is exercise and timing exercise because in my own experience seems like I just sleep better if I get some good exercise in and also I consider going to a sauna a form of exercise from our cardiovascular system so that seems to also improve sleep especially if I do that a little bit earlier today so what's your take on exercise and its effect on sleep quality 
So exercise done early in the day or not too late at night more specifically tends to be good for sleep quality. If you take somebody, typical office worker, and you put them on an exercise training program, then they'll tend to fall asleep faster at night. They'll feel like they slept better the next day and they will typically sleep slightly longer. Sometimes their sleep is slightly more efficient too. So both objective and subjective measures of sleep tend to improve. Now, there's another consideration, which is the best time of day at which to exercise for different outcomes. And there's been some really interesting research on this in recent times. And I'll speak about this in a couple of contexts. So one is athletes and one is people with metabolic dysregulation. So if we start with that, there was some work published last year by Julian Zirath, who is an exercise scientist. I think she's in Stockholm. And what she did was had adult men who have type 2 diabetes do high-intensity intermittent training on bicycles, either in the morning or in the afternoon for two weeks. And during this time, they wore continuous glucose monitors, which give minute-by-minute readouts of somebody's blood sugar levels. And what she found was that when people did the exercise in the afternoon, their blood sugar regulation was better. And interestingly, in the morning exercise group, it was actually worse than it was at baseline during the first week. And then during the second week, it tended to normalize. So based on that particular study, it seems like the best time at which to do that type of high intensity intermittent training might be the afternoon. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that people shouldn't only exercise, they shouldn't exercise in the morning if that's the only time which they can exercise. I absolutely wouldn't say mm-hmm. that because what you'll find is that over time, your body will likely adapt to the time of day at which you exercise. And that brings me nicely to some people who are interested in performing better. So take your athlete, for example. If you look at strength and power performance, then it tends to closely track body temperature and body temperature, core body temperature specifically, tends to be highest in the mid-afternoon for most people. And for that reason, they typically produce more power and are slightly stronger at that time. And there's been a little bit of work by K.O. McKinnon that's shown that if anything, doing strength and power training in the afternoon for a period of several weeks tends to lead to slightly better exercise adaptations to when it's done in the morning. But what you do find is that people who do it in the morning have less of a morning to afternoon difference in their strength and power over time. And that difference in the training adaptations is pretty small. So if you want to optimize your strength and power performance, then the best time is probably in the afternoon. If you want to do high-intensity intermittent training, then the best time is If you can only exercise in the morning, then do so then. And best time of day at which to do endurance exercise is currently unclear because in part, one of the things that limits endurance exercise performance is probably body temperature and thermoregulation. So if you look at ultra-endurance athletes who go out and run miles and miles, then at some point their body simply gets too hot, at which point that signals to the brain, hold on, we need to think about slowing down or stopping here because this is threatening the integrity of my body. Hmm. And for that reason, it'll be interesting to see whether the best time of day at which to do endurance is opposed to the afternoon. Right. So 
Okay, so I should exercise in the afternoon. Uh, if I don't have any other choice, uh, but morning I should exercise then. Uh, one thing that kind of um, uh, comes to my mind is also cortisol cycle. So cortisol tends to be highest in the morning. And timing exercise that moment at least uh, makes me even more irritated. So uh, I don't know, like, yeah, a lot of people like to wake themselves up by going for a run in the morning. So if that's your thing, do that. Um, if you're uh, someone into resistance uh, training then or, or lifting weights, then probably afternoon is best in terms of uh, cardiac output and probably lift more at that time as well. So... And and also exercising too late is not a good idea from core body temperature perspective. Maybe there are some other things going on. Is, is there something going on in terms of hormones or uh, inflammation or so on to exercise at night? Yeah, it's it's a good question. There are a few different things going on, and just to give people some recommendations initially, I would suggest that you finish doing any strenuous exercise at least three hours before you plan to go to bed and any moderate exercise at least two hours before. What's going on during exercise? Obviously your body temperature will increase. Your body will increase production of various different stress hormones to mobilize energy reserves and raise your blood pressure and so on to meet the demands of the exercise. And if those hang around too long, then they will interfere with your ability to initiate sleep also. But the other thing to consider here is that many people now exercise in the built environment, go to the gym and so on. And let's say that you normally go to bed at 10 p.m. and you can only make it to the gym at 8 p.m. You're now going to a very brightly lit place with loud music. And both of those things are going to interfere with your sleep too. So it's not just those changes that are recurring in response to exercise that are going to impact your sleep. It's all the things that come with the context in which you're exercising too. Right, right. And probably also going to a bar in the evening uh, for a party and getting exposed to heavy heavy and strong lights might not be good for your circadian rhythm and that alcohol. So uh, let's touch substance abuse a little bit. Like how many glasses of alcohol would be detrimental for sleep quality and timing also? Like would a lunchtime glass of wine uh, be the same as the glass of wine just before going to sleep. And yeah, so what's your take on that? To start with quantity, the government guidelines over here are for two units per day per person for an adult. And that's about the amount that's in a pint of beer or a medium glass of wine. Obviously, that's generic. People differ dramatically in their ability to detoxify ethanol. And I didn't mention this earlier, but when I was discussing the half-life of melatonin, that varies hugely between people. And that's true of all different drugs. And also the half-life is dependent on the time of day at which you consume something as well. So what you probably find is that there are some people who can consume alcohol relatively late in the day and it won't affect their sleep much. And then you have other people who consume small amounts relatively early in the day and it will dramatically negatively affect their sleep. But as a rule of thumb, I would suggest that people stop consuming alcohol by about four hours before bedtime is a start. Track your sleep so that you can try to understand how alcohol does affect your sleep. I know that alcohol ruins my sleep if it's too late in the day. So yeah. I always try to 
consume it early in the day when possible. But in reality, it's rarely the case if I'm drinking it, it's early in the day. And if you look at how alcohol affects sleep, they're slightly faster after drinking. And early in the night, they'll spend a great proportion of the time asleep in the deeper stage of sleep, in slow wave sleep. But then later in the evening, when their body starts to clear the alcohol, their sleep fragments. They're more likely to wake up and their sleep's less restorative. And then if you ask them the next day, or if you test them objectively, how they're functioning, then you will find that alcohol is negatively affected both their cognitive performance and possibly their physical performance too. Right. So that's alcohol. Now, caffeine and coffee is obvious, like that, that can hinder your ability to go to sleep. And there's genetic differences also in terms of how your liver metabolizes caffeine. Mm -hmm. So if you are so-called slow metabolizer, having a cup of coffee later in the day might have stronger effect on your sleep quality and ability to fall asleep compared to someone else. Now, there is a hack that goes around the biking community, which is to take tannin. So I would love to take, yeah. you know, you know, touch that topic and hear your opinion. Yeah. So should I start by commenting on caffeine in general and then move to alphaneing afterwards? Yeah. Okay. So caffeine blocks the interaction of a chemical in the brain named adenosine with its receptors. And I mentioned this because adenosine builds up in our brain promotes sleepiness. So it's a really important core part of how sleep is regulated. And I also mentioned it because I'll come back and mention creatine later because it's interesting and relevant here. Now, caffeine tends to shift our body's clocks later if it's consumed too late in the day than that a few years ago. And interestingly, if you actually just apply caffeine to cells in dishes, then the clocks in those individual cells tick slightly slower. So it's affecting the circadian system directly, independent of its effects on sleep too. Hmm. There are big differences between people and how they metabolize caffeine, as you mentioned, such as perhaps five and a half to six hours but in some people, particularly people with liver, liver pathology, so for example, if somebody has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or alcoholic fatty liver disease, then you might find that the half-life of caffeine is more than 24 hours. So oh. for those people, even small amounts of caffeine are going to... Other people, they metabolize caffeine very quickly and they might be able to consume caffeine for sleep and barely notice any effects on their sleep. I'm not recommending that, but that might be the case for a very small number of people. Okay, so there will be so, most people, so, so there will be differences in half-life of coffee. So uh, mm. I, I guess like typically it's like six hours um, for caffeine half-life. So 50% of caffeine is still in your system after six hours. For uh, something like chocolate theobromine, it seems to be around 10 hours or something like this. Um, uh, and uh, so you can have, if you have damaged liver, if if you have, if you're a genetic freak, uh, whatever uh, goes on with your liver enzymes, that can be even longer. And uh, you probably know it if you are one of those people. So as a rule of thumb, I think for most people, cutting caffeine by about nine hours before their planned bedtime makes sense. And I would try to cap caffeine intake at about two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass, which 
for most adults is something like one and a half cups of coffee. There's a website named Caffeine Informer that has the caffeine quantities and commonly consumed foods and drinks, which is quite useful if you want to understand how much caffeine you're currently consuming. And if I move now to L-theanine, then many people who are interested in nootropics in particular take the two together because L-theanine seems to take the edge off caffeine a bit. And they tend to have that boost in alertness that you get from caffeine, but without any sensations of jitteriness or anything like that. So it provides this type of calm focus. There's been a little bit of work looking at L-theanine and sleep, but I would say that it's pretty inconclusive. It certainly doesn't hurt. And if you're somebody who struggles with sleep because you tend to feel a bit anxious at times, then L-theanine might be something that's useful to consume. And many people also find that green tea leaves them with a different experience in terms of its effects on alertness then some might relate to the fact that L-theanine is present in green tea and it's not present in coffee for example so I think it's something uh, and if you combine the two and feel like it doesn't interfere with your sleep as much then definitely stick with it the one thing that I want to return to that I mentioned earlier is creatine so the longer that you've been awake the greater the accumulation of adenosine in the brain, adenosine then binds to its receptors and it promotes sleepiness. And this is so-called sleep homeostasis taking place. Mm. And the greater the accumulation of adenosine during the day, the deeper the deeper stage of sleep will be and your sleep will tend to consolidate better too. And that's why caffeine tends to break up sleep. Now, whereas caffeine blocks the interaction of adenosine with its receptors, what creatine does is it increases stores of phosphocreatine in the brain and phosphate groups from these phosphocreatine stores can then be used to recycle ATP from the adenosine in the brain. So what that means is that adenosine doesn't accumulate as quickly in the brain over the course of the day. So there's then less, less pressure to sleep. So if you're somebody who's taking creatine, let's say that you want to put on muscle mass, for example, which is probably its most common use, then it makes sense to consume it early in the day and you want to consume it with carbohydrate and sodium because those will increase uptake and also reduce the likelihood of it producing any sorts of gastrointestinal distress too. What's interesting though is that whereas caffeine consumed in excess tends to lead to problems with sleep, then also the corresponding problems that people experience when they don't get enough sleep the next day, creatine doesn't seem to do that. If anything, creatine seems to be good for the body and the brain. Mm. So if you look, for example, at cognitive function, then several measures of that will improve after taking creatine. If you look at women with treatment-resistant depression, so they've been trying SSRIs, for instance, and they haven't got anywhere with them, some of those people respond really well to creatine. They feel better as a result of that. If you look at cognitive function after sleep loss, then creatine seems to improve cognitive function, but it also seems to improve physical performance after sleep loss. There was right. some work by Christian Cook a few years ago looking at rugby players, and he found that if they consume caffeine or creatine after sleep loss, then their passing skills remain after that period of insufficient sleep. So creatine is the one compound that to me is something that people who aren't currently getting enough sleep 
for whatever reason, could take to help them maintain their physical and mental health during those periods of duress? Because the reality is that for some people, they, they just can't get the seven to nine hours in bed each night that they need. And if they're in one of those periods, then I would just say, try taking anywhere between three and five grams of creatine per day. It's only likely to help you. Oh, wonderful. So is there any other little known sleep hacks or supplements that uh, you are aware of that is discussed very little in you know the health um, community? I think most of the ones that have some efficacy are appreciated. And I, I'm normally a little bit reluctant to speak about supplements because for most people, they have much lower hanging fruit to attend to, such as the pre-sleep ritual, which we can get to later. But the ones that are regularly discussed that I think are useful for some people, L-tryptophan, two grams a day, an hour before bed, tends to help people fall asleep faster, if anything. L-glycine, taken three grams a day, an hour before bed might help people fall asleep faster and feel like they slept slightly better. Again, it's one of these supplements that's good for general health. And this is always something that I consider with sleep supplements. How does it influence everything else too? And you know, magnesium, 200 milligrams a day, possibly bound to glycine. There's some weak evidence suggesting that it might improve sleep. It definitely won't hurt sleep. Interestingly, brain magnesium concentrations have this clear circadian rhythm such that they're much higher during the nighttime. So that makes sense for some people and it won't hurt. And also most people don't get enough magnesium and magnesium does seem to be good for metabolic health, particularly for things like metabolic syndrome. So you can give that a go. Zinc, a lot of people speak about 40 milligrams a day you could bind it to glycine, but I don't think that the evidence of that improving sleep is very strong. Vitamin D, taken 2,000 IUs a day as cholecalciferol, will tend to help people who experience pain and the, the effect that that has on sleep. But you always want to monitor your vitamin D levels at the same time. And I don't think that taking vitamin D as a supplement is likely to be nearly as beneficial as improving your vitamin D status by spending more time outdoors in daylight. So I would always go that route first if it's possible for you. And then otherwise, have these mild anxiolytical, anxiety-reducing properties that people might find helpful. So lavender is commonly used. There's a particular brand named Selexum that people can try. Valerian and lemon balm are others that some people really like. I mentioned those two together because they seem to have synergistic effects on GABA, which is this sleep-promoting neuromodulator. So you could try taking something like 360 milligrams of valerian and 240 milligrams of lemon balm about an hour before bed if you want to give that a go. But again, for most people, I would focus on the lower hanging fruit. There are a few supplements that potentially could have some positive effects on sleep. I was actually sent one today by a lady who I met at a supplement expo earlier this year. And it's a new melatonin formulation, which has this asparagus extract in it, which supposedly might help sleep. And if I recall correctly, that's through heat shock pathways and possible effects of those on sleep. And also brown fat activators plausibly could affect sleep, which hasn't been shown in humans yet, but certainly brown fat is important to the regulation of 
sleep homeostasis, which I mentioned animals. So things that activate that, such as capsaicin, which you find in chilies, or cinnamon, or some of the compounds in ginger, could plausibly affect sleep. That's very speculative. But if we're thinking about novel niche biohacks <laughs> that people might yeah. try and might one day prove to be effective, I'd be looking at some of those pathways, I think. Right. So, so, so also ways to increase brown adipose tissues, mm. probably one thing. So getting regular exposure to heat alteration, cold exposure is a good idea. And then combine that with a cup of uh, your favorite Eastern spiced uh, evening teas might be, might be awesome. So uh, yeah, uh, there you have it. I mean, um, I don't want to go into sleep medication um, um, because that is uh, uh, another big topic to dive into. We don't have much time for that, but people who are interested in, uh, I mean, Greg is awesome, you know, when it comes to, a well, he's a wealth of knowledge when, when it comes to sleep optimization. And he will be at the Barker Summit, 1st and 2nd of November in Helsinki, Finland. And uh, we'll, we'll be giving a comprehensive overview on how you can optimize your sleep from the moment when you wake up to the moment when you go to sleep. And uh, maybe we'll also hear a few words about sleep medication, a bunch of other things we didn't have time to touch base upon. So with that, I mean, Greg... Um, what are your uh, kind of, if you take the three things based on all the research that you've done to optimize your own sleep, like what would be the three things that you, you find yourself doing over and over again? Like, uh, do you use blue light blocking glasses? Do you, you know, supplement on some of these things? So what are you doing personally? Yeah, so I'll just preface this by saying that sleep differs dramatically between people. So what's optimal for one person isn't optimal for somebody else. I know that's a really banal comment, but it, sure. it is important. So some people, they struggle to stay asleep. Some people have snoring. Some people have obstructive sleep apnea. And for these different conditions, people need different strategies. But as things that everybody needs to do well, I think that I would probably start by first, focusing on things that people can do to quieten their minds in preparation for sleep. So if you look at how sleep varies across the working week, then sleep problems tend to be more prevalent at the start of the working week. You have a lot of work-related stress these days. And if when you go to bed, you're trying to hold in your mind all these different things that you need to get done the next day at work, then that is going to interfere with, interfere with your ability to shut off. So with that in mind, something simple that people can do is get a diary and pen or pencil, keep that by the bedside, and within a couple of hours of bed, list everything that you need to get done the next day and in days to come. And also anything good that happened that day in your life. And that type of approach has been shown to help people fall asleep faster. I think it's a really useful strategy for many people. Another one would be light exposure, of course. And there's an enormous difference between people in how sensitive they are to light. There's some really nice work published this year on this very subject. And they found that comparing people who are similar in many different ways, such as age, 
there can be about a 60-fold difference in the degree to which light reduces melatonin synthesis at night, which is enormous. And I'm not talking about massive amounts of light exposure either. I'm speaking about levels of light that would commonly be experienced in people's homes. So reducing your exposure to artificial light and to light in general, bedtime makes sense. That could be dimming the lights, it could be turning off some lights, it could be wearing blue blocking glasses. All those different things can be helpful. You should be dimming the brightness settings on your devices at those times too. If you have an Android phone, if you have an iPhone, you can use night shift mode. Again, it is important to dim them too though. There's also some software named Iris, which I know some biohackers like, which you can personalize to a greater degree than something like F.Lux. But for most people, F.Lux will do the job just fine. So that's very important. Then obviously in the bedroom itself, it needs to be very dark too. That could be blackout blinds. It could be wearing an eye mask if blackout blinds aren't feasible. Both of those things are likely to only help you. And then I'll mention three more things. One is keep your bedroom cool. 18 degrees C is about right for most people because what you need to happen is for the temperature of your core and your brain specifically to drop by just over one degree Celsius to help you enter the deeper stage of sleep. And if your bedroom is on the cool side, then it's pulling your temperature in the right direction. So that's going to be a useful strategy for many people. Another would be to maintain a regular sleep schedule. This is really important. It's something that I haven't emphasized, I think, but your body thrives on regularity. We spoke about diet earlier. It's very much true of that too. Diet timing consistency is really important to metabolic regulation, metabolic health in general. And the same is absolutely true of sleep. So there's more and more work that's come out in recent years looking at irregular sleep patterns and how they predict various different health outcomes and it's quite convincing that people with more regular sleep schedules do much better with respect to numerous different health outcomes subsequently so regular sleep schedule which you can ingrain by reinforcing a consistent bedtime you could set an alarm for the start of your pre-bed ritual for example and shortly after that you could turn off your devices that'd be a really good thing to do as well And then finally, your brain is a very associative organ and there's this idea of stimulus control in the field of sleep research, which is just that if you're struggling with sleep at the moment and you're lying awake in bed thinking, why can't I sleep? Then what's happened is that your brain has started to associate your bed with being a place of wakefulness. And what you need to do is retrain your brain to associate your bed with the really means a couple of things it means limiting your bedroom to sex and sleep only and it also means that if you are currently struggling to fall asleep and then stay asleep during the night when you've been in bed for more than 15 minutes or so you should actually leave your bedroom and go elsewhere and do something relaxing and then only when you're very sleepy return to your bedroom And then what you're going to do over time is you're going to retrain your brain to associate your bedroom with sleep and thereby sleep better. And to facilitate that, you want to make sure the place that you're going to is comfortable in advance. So if you're struggling with your sleep and let's say you go to your living room instead of your bedroom during those periods of wakefulness, just make sure it's a comfortable temperature in there. Maybe leave a very dim light on in a corner. Just make it 
less arduous dragging yourself out of your bed to go to this place when you are really tired, but you just can't fall asleep for whatever reason. Right. So stimulus control, uh, I guess, like not training your brain to check on social media and other dopamine releasing stimulus at bedtime. So leave the goddamn phone out of your bedroom if you can and also the tv doesn't belong there if if that's the thing uh that you are after which is sleep uh and not staying awake all night long so with that i mean thank you very much greg uh i'm pretty sure we will uh come up with uh all, all kinds of interesting material when it comes to optimizing your day and sleep is definitely one of the biggest topics at the biker summit Uh, this year also uh, one of the biggest things that people struggle one of the key cornerstone for performance health and well-being all the other things uh, optimizing your diet and exercise comes secondary and supplementation uh, least so but you can definitely use all of those exercise nutrition timing these things supplementation to also help you to optimize your sleep so it all goes hand in hand so thank you very much greg for guiding us through some of these aspects of how people can get better sleep and uh yeah we're looking forward for your for your keynote at barker summit and uh yeah thank you very much greg yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it too i really enjoyed the event last time i think that You put on fantastic summits, and I'm saying that from the bottom of my heart. And everything about it was so smooth. The production quality, the food, and everything. So if people haven't been to one before, then come say hi, check it out, and you have a great time. Thank you very much. And certainly, you haven't been to Helsinki. It's a completely different ball game. So because that's our home ground, pretty much for playing this 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 game. And uh, uh, Stockholm and Tallinn were awesome, but this is going to be even more so. So. I welcome you very much for that. And uh, yeah, with that, have an extremely awesome midsummer. I don't think I'm going to be sleeping that much because the sun is going to be up all night and I'm going to break all the rules that you just mentioned because it's celebration also. I guess that's allowed once a year and then we get back to our biohacking techniques and tactics because in the end it's not what you do once in a while, it's what you do repeatedly over a period of time. Thank you very much.